0: We're going to try something new today. As we read the scripture, I think it's a way to show honor to the Word of God, if we could stand as we read. We're going to open to uh, Mark 5. I know the bulletin says we're reading 120 verses. not going to read that many, but we will read the first 20. Please read with me. They went across the lake to the region of the garrisons, and when Jesus got out of the boat... A man with an impure spirit came to the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons with his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, do not torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, began to tell all the people in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all of the people were amazed. May God bless this reading of his word. Please have a seat. A couple of years ago, I took our youth group to Pittsburgh. And there we were doing some local ministry, and, and while we were there, we were staying at a church. It was a rather new church. And this church bought what used to be a nursing hospital, a teaching hospital for nurses, like way back. We're talking 1800s, kind of way back in the day. So they bought, I mean, it looked like a stone castle. looked like something maybe Dracula might have set shop up in some time. And now there was a church there, and they were renovating part of the building. And the rest of the building hadn't so much been renovated. So, of course, while we're there, Teenagers being teenagers, they wanted to go exploring. And I felt, well, I'm not going to tell them no, but at least I'm going to be somewhat responsible and go with them. And so we found in the basement of this church all these rooms. Actually, this church had, um, the, the teaching hospital used to have a swimming pool as part of a therapy room. And so in the basement, you could see that the swimming pool came all the way down. And running around the swimming pool, was a hallway, and connected to this hallway were all these rooms, very scary rooms without windows. And the church decided in all of its wisdom that it would set up a haunted house for Halloween. And actually, it set up what they called a hell house. Have have you ever heard of hell houses? Every once in a while, it, it distresses me a lot when churches do hell houses. I'll tell you why. The idea behind a hell house is to set up a Christian version of a haunted house. And this Christian haunted house, the idea is to to lead people room by room and show them their sins in action and show them where their lives are going to go if they don't repent and come to God. And eventually to scare them into Jesus' arms. I have a problem with that. If if you don't know much about me, uh, start to learn this. I don't like emotional manipulation, especially from the pulpit, especially from churches. I think that we, uh, emotion is tied into our faith, emotion is tied into our lives, but I think it's very deceitful to make serious decisions just based on where you're at emotionally in your lives. Um, I also think it doesn't really edify us as Christians to dwell on hell. It doesn't really uh, benefit us to be dwelling on images of hell and speculating what hell will look like because, um, of course, our vision should be on heaven instead. If you, if you ever really wanted to get a, a vision of hell, if you ever had that morbid curiosity, I think you really should go no further than to look at this passage here. This would really give us, fulfill whatever desire you have in your heart to ever look at hell. Because right here, this story is an uncomfortable reminder of the spiritual warfare that rages on all around us all of the time. As a reminder that the spiritual warfare was especially prevalent during Jesus' ministry and work here on earth. In this account in Mark 5, we see how in the middle of hell, visiting earth itself, Jesus performs a daring rescue mission to pull a man out of the clutches of Satan and his army. So last week we talked about this harrowing sea voyage across the Sea of Galilee and the, and the storms that had happened And now we're finding out why Jesus was so bent on getting across that lake, why he wanted to get across and get to a specific point. Jesus and his disciples arrive in a predominantly Gentile region. They've left behind Capernaum, and they cross the sea, and now they're among mostly Gentiles and Roman garrisons, so mostly people who aren't Jews and don't have the training in the Scriptures. The disciples here are probably wondering, why they were even there. But Jesus has a very specific goal in mind. And we meet that goal here in verse 2. We're introduced here to an unnamed demon-possessed man whose existence, Mark, takes the pains to spell out his, his tortured existence in ghastly terms. This man, I don't want us to really skip over this, this man is suffering greatly from the possession of many many demons, not just one demon in his life, as we met back in in chapter 1, but many. And he at this point had been exiled from his community to roam among the tombs of the dead. His friends and family previously had tried to subdue him. They tried to tie him up, to chain him, in some way just to stop him from hurting himself and from hurting others. He was a danger to everyone around him. But the demons inside of him lent him so much strength that he was able to rupture those chains. Imagine how strong you would have to be to do that. So now this man, outcast, tormented from the inside out, spends his life in this desolate area, cutting himself with stones, infected from all those cuts, howling in his misery, not even talking, Not setting up shop, not camping among the tombs, just wandering around, bleeding, screaming, in pain. Again, this is as close to a vision of hell as we should ever want to see. A man who is isolated from others, who is tormented by demons, he's in clear agony in his life. His possession should upset you, should upset any reader as we look at this passage because this man is being violated. He is God's creation, and he's being violated by Satan's demons. Mark labors the description of this man to really hammer home how unclean he was in the Jewish society, and especially to Jews, to Jesus, to the, to the Bible. Not only, of course, is he living in this Gentile region. There's some pigs nearby, so that's another sign that we're no longer among the Jews. But where is he living right now? Where is he wandering? He's wandering among the tombs of the dead. Just being in the presence of that would make you unclean. He, of course, is possessed by demons, and that automatically separates you from society. Nothing is clean here. It is all very filthy. It's polluted. It's corrupted. He's in torment. He's unable to rest. I can't imagine. Maybe he's just gone for days without sleep. Filth and loneliness and terror are this man's life. And when we look at this passage, we should see this man as Jesus does, having compassion, coming out, seeing a man who we want to see saved, an image of God who has been degraded this deeply. One day when I was a kid, my friends and I were kind of exploring the neighborhood, and behind a shed, we found a dead bird. That's kind of sad when you see something that that died that previously was alive. And us being boys, we did what boys do. We stood around it. We said, "Ew, let's poke it with a stick. So we poked it with a stick. And finally, after that amusement wore off, touch it. No, you touch it. No, you touch it. And we touched a dead thing. And I went home, and my mom somehow found out. And guess what happened next? Get naked, stand on this stool, and I'm scrubbing you head to toe. And as she's scrubbing me, she's telling me, You do not touch dead things, honey. Dead things carry disease, they carry germs. Don't do it. And after that point, I don't think I've ever touched a dead bird. I think if I ever saw a dead bird, I gave it a very wide berth and walk around it. That's what we do. And notice here, this unclean man is unclean to the deepest order. Jesus makes a beeline right for him. Once again, like with the leper, Jesus is not afraid of something unclean making him unclean. Instead, he goes to this man, he seeks him out. We find out this is precisely why Jesus is is going across the lake through that storm. And I believe that that storm was partially sent to stop Jesus from this mission. Part of Jesus' mission on earth was to confront hell for those who were lost in its clutches. No, it doesn't take a dead bird or a demon to even make us unclean, of course. What does that? Sin. Sin comes into our lives. The darkness of sin clutches at many of us, corrupts, the good thing that God created. There's nothing good in a life of sin other than what we see here in this man, other than pain and separation and ultimately death. But the good news is we have a God who seeks us out even in our filth. He wants to scrub us clean. He wants to remove from us the danger of hell. But the question here, as Jesus confronts this man, can he do it? It's no coincidence that Mark pairs the story of the storm and the account of the man among the tombs together in his gospel because both of these passages show us how Jesus is a God of order amidst the chaos of hell. First of all, Jesus brings order to the chaos of the natural world. He brings order to the chaos of the storm. And now he moves from the natural world to the supernatural one and he brings order there. In the sport of boxing, I don't know, do we have any boxing aficionados among our congregation? Maybe you're ashamed. to. Okay, yeah, Linda's bold and brash here. If you're ever a fan of the sport of boxing, I know who from having some friends who are, they always tell me, tell me I, I've asked them, like, what do you get out of a boxing match? What do, you, what do you hope to see? They say, we always hope that the match goes the distance. We don't want to go to a match that's over really quickly. We want to see people slug it out. We want to see a, a really Rocky versus Apollo Creed kind of Duke Fest as is going on here. You want to get your money's worth, especially if you're going to a boxing match. You've dropped a lot of money to sit down and watch two fellows wallop each other. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Mox, boxer Mike Collins currently holds the Guinness World Book of Records for the shortest boxing match in history. He's had that record ever since 1947, when he was pitted against Pat Brownson in a Golden Gloves tournament. What happened was, in the very first second, Mike launched himself out of the corner. He ran right up to Pat, threw one punch, knocked Pat flat out. And in four seconds, the boxing match was over that quickly. Jesus did it quicker, right here. And in fact, it is not even a match. Once again, we don't see hell confronting heaven and there being a titanic struggle with Jesus sweating, with him holding out his hands, with him saying magic words, with hell and heaven, with a rupture and a movie-like earthquake happening around them. And in fact, what happens? This demon-possessed man is full of an army, as we're going to find out, an army of demons, who's so strong that he can break chains, runs up to Jesus and falls flat on his face in front of him. I had Jehovah's Witness came to my doorstep back in Michigan and we were talking. And really when you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses, the key is to talk about Jesus because they don't believe Jesus was God. They believe he was an angel. And so as an angel, Jesus is not deserving of worship. You don't A Hebrew tells us, you don't kneel before angels. You don't worship angels. And so I said, I, I just asked this lady, I said, what would you do if Jesus walked right up to us right now? She said, I don't know. Thank him. Talk with him. I said, you know what I would do? I would fall flat on my face because there is no alternative to when God shows up on your doorstep than to fall on your face. And when Jesus shows up to this man, he falls on his face. The demons go to their knees right before God himself, and they surrender. And the only recourse they have left is to negotiate the terms of that surrender. We see a little bit of that here. Maybe you've had a question. Why are these demons even get? Light? Why doesn't Jesus just say, go, and they go? Why is there a bit of you know Jesus saying, get out, and the demons saying, no, 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 but, but, please? They answer here. Actually, it's back in the book of Matthew. When Matthew's covering the same account, Matthew tells us that the demons say, it is not our time yet. Do not send us back to the abyss. It is not our time yet. Because the demons know what we find out in the book of Revelation, that there will be a day and a time that God will bind all demons and bind Satan to hell forever. And they will be cast down. But until then, the demons are roaming free. Satan is roaming free. It is not their time yet. And so the demons are able to negotiate with Jesus. And they go up to him. And it's here in this section that we get a fuller picture of this man's suffering as Jesus demands to know the name of the demon. Remember, Jesus created not just us, but all of the angels. And, all, and the angels that have fallen are the fallen angels are the demons. He knows their names. He knows who this is. And so he asks, he says, who are you? And this this demon inside acknowledges that it is legion. That is, it is many demons. A legion back then would be something on the the order of thousands of men, Roman legions. Thousands of demons crammed inside one man. That is how deeply he's been tormented. And for all their numbers, these demons know what their final destination is going to be. They beg Jesus, don't torture us. Don't send us there. Please. They even acknowledge who Jesus is. They don't want to face God's wrath. Not yet. Please, Lord, don't let us have that God's Don't let us go there yet. So they ask for mercy. They ask for a brief respite. When we read about the authority that Jesus has here to confront hell itself, and we see how hell responds, we are made that there is just nothing in our power that will be able to stand against the righteousness and holiness of God. When, when we go to heaven and, God, and Jesus looks at us and asks us that question, why should I let you in? You cannot look on your own merits and say, I've done more good than bad in my life. All you can do is do what the demons do here and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I am not worthy, but your blood has made me worthy. By your blood, I would like to go to heaven. By your blood, I know I am clean. The wonderful thing is that to us, Jesus is willing to give us that mercy. Now, I've handled some tough questions about this passage over the years, and I'm not just talking why there are pig herders around. You know that When I was a kid, that kind of threw me for a loop. Why are there pigs in Jewish country? And now we kind of have the answer that this is a little outside of the Jewish scope. But when people really dig into this account, the two questions that I'm asked the most is why is Jesus expending all of this effort, going on a huge trip, braving the storm, going through the storm, and going through all of this for one man. Why would Jesus do this for one man? And why was Jesus so mean to those pigs? I hear that a lot. People actually honestly struggle with this passage going, well, Jesus is a good God, but why would he let those demons go into the pigs? Knowing that the pigs were just going to jump off the cliff and do a belly dive and drown. Why? The thing is, I think those two questions are very much related. Why would Jesus go through all this effort for one man? and Why would Jesus let this happen to those pigs? It might seem wasteful and cruel, but when we study it, there's something very interesting here because it shows us about the nature and the mission of Jesus. So as we've established, the authority of Jesus is very much on full display in this account. He is the master over hell the same way that he's master over nature. And his mission here is to fulfill the Great Commission, to seek out the lost, to baptize them into the family of God, and to make disciples of them. He's very much focused on this mission at all times. And I'm sure you've heard it said that if you were the only sinner in the world, Jesus still would have come and died for you. You've heard people say that, right? If anybody ever asks you, well, prove it, show them this story right here. Because here we have Jesus who actually left the crowds, who goes on a sea voyage, goes across for one man. For one man. He's gone on a journey to a single tormented man who is lost physically, spiritually, and mentally. And Jesus loves this man so much that he made it his mission to find him and to save him. This right here is the story of the Good Shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 to find that one lost sheep. I love it. Compassion is the weapon that Jesus wields against the forces of hell. And look how hell responds. Compassion for all the lost would put Jesus on the cross years later, just like this man, cut, bleeding, and feeling God's wrath bearing down on him. His compassion for that man put Jesus on that cross. His compassion for us. But do you all want... You didn't come here for that. You came here for the pigs. So let's talk about the pig situation. I think there's a few points to be made about these pigs. And I think they're they're actually quite telling. Starting with the fact that Jesus is king over all of creation. And these pigs are part of that creation. All of creation is Jesus's to use as he wills for what he wills. And so if Jesus thought that it was a good thing for those demons to be cast out of that man and into those pigs, then it was a good thing for that to happen. God decides what he wants to do with his nature and his creation. But if that's not enough, consider that this demonstrates the priority that Jesus has in his ministry, to be compassionate to people over animals. Any day of the week, Jesus would choose a person over pigs. Um, we uh, that this made me think this past week of Mark chapter or Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus reminds him as, of his followers that they are worth to him more than sparrows. And yet God still has compassion upon sparrows. God still loves those sparrows. He made those sparrows, but Jesus says you matter so much more to God than the sparrows right there. You matter to God more than pigs. Finally, and I think that this is a point strongly worth considering, the reaction of the pigs here, of screaming, of running away, of jumping off a cliff, of drowning, shows us the power that these demons had, shows us the level of torment that had previously been in this man, this man who had gone countless days struggling with being possessed by an army of demons, and these pigs couldn't stand it for a single second. How did that man even manage to survive? These pigs, when suddenly, when all those demons got into these pigs, 2,000 pigs suddenly, I mean, this must have been a cacophony of sound, screaming, squealing, screeching pigs, suddenly worked up. I mean, pigs are kind of noisy anyways. But now they're just on a whole other level. And suddenly all of the witnesses, the disciples, This man, the the pig herders, all of them are watching with wide eyes as these pigs are screaming and suddenly jumping over. And they see, they have a visible proof of this exorcism, visible proof of Jesus' power to cast out an entire army of demons. That right there is a visible testimony to the power of God. If I ever go into the Hallmark business, I'm going to make a card that says, you are worth more than 2,000 pigs. And it's going, be a, it's going to be a bestseller. Dear Jack, I promised Jack I'd use him in a sermon illustration day. Dear Jack, you're worth more than 2,000 pigs. Love, Pastor Justin. But seriously, you are so much more incredibly precious to our Lord that he pursued you until he found you, until he called you, until he made you clean. You are a creation of God that he wants to redeem to himself. So the aftermath of this mass exorcism, this pig massacre, naturally deeply unsettles the nearby town. As with last uh, week, remember the parallels? We're talking about parallels here. With last week's storm, the aftermath there is the disciples were what? Afraid. And here, once again, Jesus performs an incredible miracle, a miracle of salvation. And the response, once again, is fear. Fear. They should be falling over themselves with gratitude and thanksgiving. I mean, the whole town should have showed up and thrown Jesus a parade. Jesus, we, didn't, we couldn't handle this guy. I mean, we're at our wit's end with him. We tried to bind him, and he couldn't, couldn't be bound. And We cast him out. His friends and family loved this guy. This guy had people who cared about him, and now he's being restored to them. There should have been a feast thrown in Jesus' honor. How do they respond? Get out, Jesus. We don't want you here. We're terrified of you. What kind of person is this that's able to do something like that? Jesus, you're just too wild. You're too holy. You're too disruptive. Yeah, look at this. Jesus not only has compassion upon this man, Jesus has compassion upon, on these people who are rejecting him at the moment. That is us. That is us who at some point in our life rejected Jesus, and Jesus still looked at us and said, yeah, but I'm going to have compassion on you anyway. I'm going to send you the word. He sends us the word, and he sends the word to these people. This man who, by the way, when, when the townspeople come to him, look at how he's been restored. He's been freshly dressed. He's in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's a very spitting image of somebody who's been redeemed by Christ, who's had the new life put on him, clothed in new life. And that's at the foot of Jesus. And what he doesn't want to leave Jesus. He wants to be a disciple. He says, Jesus, let me go with you. You saved me, man. I want to be with you for the rest of my life. And Jesus says, no, these people, they need to hear about this. They need to hear about me. And so Jesus commissions this man as a missionary. Not just a missionary, but the very first missionary to the Gentiles that the Gospels ever record. This man who just an hour before was screaming, was out of his mind, was physically hurt, has now become a missionary, bringing Jesus' message to the people The Decapolis, that's 10 towns, a whole region of 10 towns. He would spend the rest of his life telling them, guys, you know me. You know what I used to be. You know what I used to suffer through. Jesus did this for me. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about what he can do for you. Let me ask you this. If Jesus could take that man and change his life so dramatically, What can he do for you? What can he do for people you know? If he's already changed your life, maybe it was not nearly this dramatic. But I assure you that still being lost and being redeemed by Christ, no matter how quiet, maybe how gradual that process has been, is still one to be celebrated and still one to be shared with other people. You ever see the sign saying the mission field starts the second you leave a church? happens in our community. This community right here needs to hear the word of God. and needs Jesus so badly. Kenmore does. Tonawanda does. Buffalo does. This is our mission field. If God's not sending you out like the Zimmermans and like all the other missionaries we support to other countries, which also need to hear the word. And he says, ah, 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 you're not off the hook. You're my ambassadors. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. Now go tell people about what I've done you. The Great Commission's call to go and make disciples starts right here, right now, today. The moment you leave this church door, keep your eyes open, open to the opportunities that God has for you to share your faith with others. Our mission field is everywhere, and trust me, there are people who maybe on the outside aren't looking as physically tormented, but on the inside they are. They are feeling lost, they, they don't know where God is. They, they feel the, the crush of guilt of their sin in their lives. They, trust me, they know where they're going. They know the destruction that lays ahead. and They just need somebody to point them to Jesus, somebody to take them to this Messiah so that they can say, Lord, make me clean. Put on that new life. Get rid of this pain and this loneliness and this torment in my life. I want to be at your feet forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is not the most comfortable passage in the Gospel of Mark. This is, this is very disturbing stuff that we looked at today. But Lord, also it is such a story to, to build up our joy and our excitement and our triumph as we share with you how this one man was redeemed for you and through his testimony and through your love and your power and your authority. And especially through your compassion. So many more people were saved. Lord, I just pray that you would use this story today to inspire us. Help us not to be timid in sharing our own faith. Lord, not always worried, what will this person think of me? this person think I'm just one of those Jesus freaks? You're just just always blabbing on about the Bible. Lord, help us to be authentic in our faith for us to be able to go up to people and say, you know, you see that difference in my life. Let me tell you why. Lord, help to spread your boldness through the Spirit into our lives that we might go out and make disciples of all people. In your name, amen. Now please receive the benediction. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.